Welcome to another edition of the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm coming to you from the Get the Knack podcast studio in lovely Ocean Shores, Washington. I have a very, very special guest this evening. He knows more about vampires, or actually has forgotten more about vampires than I will (laughs) ever know. He's a modern-day Montague Summers. Uh, For those of you who know who Montague Summers is, um, he is what's known as a vampirologist, and he has taken on the task of learning about and writing about and spreading the evangelism of vampire lore. And if all you folks out there know, I write vampire novels, and I am very, very interested in this subject. So all the way from Melbourne, Australia, my fourth international guest, please welcome to the program, Mr. Anthony Hogg. Anthony, welcome to Get the Knack. Thank you very much. That's a hell of an intro. <laughs> I've got a lot to live up to there. <laughs> well, you know, Thank you you're welcome. And uh, it's a long time coming, ha- you know, having you on the show. And when we get to the part about vampires in modern day pop culture, especially mm-hmm. in social media, we'll talk about how we met. Right. We have a uh, we have a common uh, mutual friend in Aaron Chapman, uh, mm-hmm. who who was my one of my international guests had her on the show recently uh, and i was a guest on her morbid planet show which on youtube which you need to be a guest on um anthony let's let's talk about your background because because uh just in the messages we trade back and forth i like to i count you among my friends now right so mm. um you know in some of the conversations uh that we had uh in an interview on vamped uh vamp.org which you and uh aaron chapman are uh, are behind Bringing yes. bringing this knowledge and this information to uh, the you know the world who's interested in in vampires and lore and pop culture, um, you know, we have a similar uh, entry into it. It started when we were very young. So how did you get into um, this particular subject? Well, uh, ever since I was young, from about eight years onward, I was interested in um, ghosts and um, uh, mysteries. You know. Bigfoot, uh, uh, UFOs, all that kind of thing. Um, but the turning point for me was the night before I started grade six, I happened to catch Fright Night Part 2, the, the 1989 version on on TV, on Channel 9, and it just kind of really sparked something in me. And, and from that point onward, I would visit my local library or I would use my school library and read about everything I could on the subject. One of the early books I was actually exposed to was Paul Barber's uh, Vampires, Burial and Death, which is is a hell of a thing for a a 12-year-old to get kind of exposed to because it talks about the the vampire phenomena being basically a a mistaken interpretation of uh, decomposition rates to to really scrape down what the book is about, you know. but it was filled with little pieces of law, and that that really um, grabbed a hold of me because I, I have a thing about um, all these little rules and customs that you find in stories, like in fairy tales, all that kind of thing as well, which the, the vampire embodies. You know, a lot of it's been scraped away with uh, modern literature, you know, like the swiping away crosses they people uh, vampires will show a reflection in the mirror or that kind of thing they've they've kind of glossed that magic tossed that magical element aside but that magical element is kind of what's drawn me into it so from that start 
the more I started to read, I actually wanted to write vampire stories myself. So a lot of what I was doing was really research for vampire stories eventually of my own. But that kind of never happened. I just ended up collecting info and, and just buying more and more material till it got to the point where I found that my real interest was actually in the history of, of, of vampirism and trying to make sense of it and eventually that led into vampire studies itself which is what I uh, which is what I'm into at the moment no yeah that, and and you know what's kind of funny is up until that point where you decided you were going to get into the history and and mm. becoming an academic um, mm. I had a very very parallel path and I actually wrote the fiction Right. So I was collecting, you know, maybe not as much research material and, and academic mm -hmm. stuff as you were, but I was collecting yes. a lot of uh, a lot of fiction. And, mm. you know, all of that was under the guise of research. So when I sat down to write my fiction, I didn't have to consult my research material um, all that deeply. It was all in my head. And I and I'd pull out a yes. book or two and say, hey, you know what? I know this. I don't have to look at this book now. What I did want to mention, because you're in Australia and you had this interest yeah. because of an American movie. Yes, true. Right. <laughs> so here's yeah. the, here's the here's the thing uh, thing uh, about that is our man Melton, who uh, Aaron Chapman just had on our Morbid Planet show. He has over the years written the Encyclopedia of the Undead and yeah. num numerous versions of this. Now, what? gets me about that and every time I've, I've flipped through my two copies of it uh, i'm not ashamed to admit i own two copies um <laughs> is that every culture on earth almost every culture there's there's a couple mm. of exceptions but almost every culture on earth has a vampire myth well that's that's kind of to me personally i i'm almost i'm probably evolving out of this position but i'm almost more of a conservative on what the concept of a vampire is so where we talk about vampires as a global phenomenon and that actually relates to what you were saying about montague summers before um that he very much and he's been highly influential on on vampire studies but his concept was that the vampire was a universal being but the reason he portrayed it that way was because Montague was advocating for the reality of vampires, whereas what the other side of it is, the anthro anthropological side, is that, that it's a manifestation of, I suppose, a human fear across the globe. Um, when we talk about... It, it's the term vampire itself that's almost very hard. It's a very slippery kind of subject because... Um, if we confront ourselves what a vampire is, if we apply it in a global context, we're actually roping in a lot of different kinds of beings. So like gods, uh, we're roping in spirits, we're roping in uh, re revenants and all that kind of thing as well. And you have to be very flexible with the term to, to make it a global phenomenon. When we use it, we're, we're using a word that has uh, come to us from uh, the Serbian uh vampire and, and then we've got the english adaptation of that but when we first got it back in 1732 uh in our language at least it was specifically in reference to an undead slavic being and then the very basic symbolism of that kind of uh creation is what we use 
as a jumping point to define what a vampire is as well. So it kind of, you, you can, like in the show, um, what we do in the shadows, where they've embraced a character like, you know, Colin, a psychic vampire as well. So it's not just the taking of blood, it's a taking of energy. In, in 1732 as well, they were already twigging on to the metaphorical use of the term where they were talking about, you know, uh, politicians being like vampires feeding off the people. It wasn't a literal description. No, very me- very spaces. metaphorical. I like um, it. But I think that's that's really, if we view it in a kind of, I, I, I do believe that you need to have a kind of a working definition of what you're talking about when we, we talk about vampires. However, I'm also open to the idea of using it more flexibly provided there's a kind of a context for doing that it's got to make sense to me but this this is um this is why it is a topic i would actually like to explore further and i'm i'm thinking of doing it through um uh, one of my journals in future um but it, it, yeah it, it's a real it's a real mind build of a topic but i would say if, if we if, if on a surface level if we say the vampire is a universal being i think what that says is 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 something more about human nature where we have various fears and they kind of manifest in different ways like you can see in the in the descriptions of vampire attacks for example that it resembles um, you know night terrors or sleep paralysis or something like that uh, and as I mentioned Barbara before, it taps into our lack of, lack of understanding of the human decomposition process, you know, which was right. interpreted in a magical kind of way before we basically, before science came along and kind of wiped that aside. So um, that's really what we're tapping into. We're tapping into cultural fears across the globe but they, the, the vampire is used as a kind of umbrella term to to cover a lot of different phenomena. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, we can even get deeper into that, right? Because just mm. like anything else there, and and this was explored in a, in a lot of pop culture in the last 30, oh, yeah. 30 years, yeah. you know, the species, right? There's different species yeah. of vampire. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you'd... <laughs> You, you throw a throw a lot of different terms and a lot of different words at me and I'm, I'm grabbing at them in the air because I there's there's so many that you're talking about God we could do we could do like a five hour show here um, <laughs> but but we're only gonna do an hour so um, but one of the things that and a friend of mine mentioned this too is as I posted some vampire literature or something or other on Facebook mm-hmm. he said you know prior to John Polidori, the the vampire was was at least in literature was 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 the revenant right it was it was just a, a ghoulish type creature um and and when polidori wrote the vampire and a lot of people thought lord byron wrote it um at the time and why wouldn't you um that that from polidori on it it the the vampire becomes or starts to become uh more more humanistic more suave yeah. And I, something else you touched on a second ago really resonates, and and that's the the reflection of fear. And I've talked about it in in decades of in the, at least in the twentieth century into the twenty first about decade by decade what at least Americans are afraid of, right? And mm-hmm. so so I think a lot of times our monsters or 
you know, even just our just our movies and our books are reflective of what we're afraid of. And I think you're right, 100%, that the vampire or what we define as a vampire uh, reflects the very, very same thing, but it goes back uh, uh, even yeah. further. Yeah. I, I think that's what makes the vampire such a perennial subject. Like, you know, it's not like in, in a pop culture context, you know, we have major waves of vampire interest. So, like, more recently, it was Twilight. Before that, it would be Anne Rice. Before that, you got Stoker. You've got, before that, you mentioned Polidori. You know, he, he was actually, his story was a major bestseller back in the day. It had, a, a, before movies, it had a whole ton of, of stage adaptations. You know, that was the Dracula of its day. Right. And the influence of that stretched right across the 19th century before Dracula just exploded, you know, and, and, and became a kind of thing itself. Each one of those says something about us as a society. Nina Auerbach most famously wrote that uh, the, the vamp. I'm paraphrasing you, but the vampire. Each generation has the vampire it needs, or something along those lines. In, in her book, uh, uh, "Our Vampires Ourselves," mm. which is like a benchmark text for modern vampire studies, uh, published back in '95, um, and it, it just. And it is interesting when you put it against a bigger picture, you know, we are not isolated from our ancestors. We're not isolated completely from the past. All that happens is the world around us changes uh, and evolves where our technology gets better. You know, we learn new things, but we're still people. So these are, this is very much a, a human kind of um, a, a humanistic kind of thing. That, that, that's going on, you know, and, and we see that in the evolution of the vampire, especially over the 20th century, where, you, as you mentioned before, the vampire was more of a revenant, but I should clarify, it wasn't maybe the shambling to zombie type of thing that, that some people think are, are an animalistic thing. The vampire in folklore did have a human kind of side to it as well. For example, in some lore, if a vampire managed to, you know, quotation marks here survive for a seven year duration it could go on to marry and you know interact with people um uh it it wasn't a complete ghoul is what i'm saying there's right. always been a kind of human element to the vampire to the point where it's not clear if a vampire is uh for uh, in the traditional sense a body that's inhabited by a demonic spirit or it's the person themselves re-inhabiting their own body and coming back. It, it's a bit, it's a bit of a grey kind of area, um, and and that's when you start chipping away at, at the representation of the vampire over time, you see that it's not such a clear cut thing. Right. You know, I've seen many people use like. Um, uh, Count Orlock from the 1922 Nosferatu as an example of what vampires were really like, but that's not true at all because that vampire was based on Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it had been very um, animalized. You know, some have drawn parallels to racist depictions of Jews. And um, also you know, the no, fear of the black death as well. I mean, it, it represented fear of uh, yeah, disease and, and pestilence not, and, 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that's that's what it was, you know, adopting a rat like appearance and to, you know, cover the rat like, you know, the rats that it has control over. But right. you don't see descriptions of that kind of vampire in older texts. In fact, the most defining characteristic of a vampire, if we were digging one up two hundred and ninety years ago, then it would look like a person. In fact, the distinguishing characteristic of a vampire was it looked like a person who was alive in their grave. Right. The, the, and that's, that's the key. You know, they were supposed to have rotted away by that time. You know, they fought, dig them up weeks later or something like that, and they found that they were intact. And that that's what... That's, that's, again, an insight into that there's always been a human element to, to the vampire. And I, and I think that's what's enabled it to continue to be popular, that it's so, there's so much you can do with that, including turning it into a well-rounded character in a, in a story or, or saga or whatever you want. 100%. I agree with that. Mm. So let's go a little further back, right? Mm-hmm. So, and because cause I really want to do talk, I want to talk about, um, you know, from, from Polidori on uh, in a minute. Um, but let's go even further back to some of the, the origins. You touched on burial rites, and I'm yeah. a firm believer in that superstitious time where um, people were afraid that, you know, Aunt Betty mm-hmm. was going to come back from the grave, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they stapled her to the back of the coffin or, or cut mm-hmm. off her head or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the lore says the vampire is going to go home. As soon as they come out of the grave, they're going home to to visit their their curse on their, their loved ones. People known to them, absolutely. That's yep. how they were identified. You know, right. like they recognized these people who were coming back. It wasn't just some random, you know, uh, visiting their house. Right. Uh, so let's go even fact, further back, even- Anthony. Let's go. I don't mean to cut you off, but let's go even further back, right? Let's go back to the <laughs> the beginning of of organized religion, right? I mean, let's mm. go back to the Bible and Lilith, mm. right? Because a lot of people mm. believe that Lilith was the first vampire, right? So there's some there there may be some demonic origins here as well, right? They, they mm. talk about the incubus and the succubus, and and that yeah. they they would you know I mean so you're we're going back you know two thousand years or more here. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to you know. You, you talk about you know these are these were uh, resurrected human beings who had died and I and I firmly believe in you know as far as uh, the lore is concerned that that that's a thing but you know we had to have reason up to that point up to the yeah. 13 14 1500s why yeah. people would even think in the fucking first place that yeah. Aunt Betty was going to rise from the grave. Yeah, uh, that that's that's exactly an answer that the vampire provides. I mean, there's a there's a great book by Darren Oldridge called Strange Strange Histories, which again connects us with the past in a way because it's easy to look back at people hundreds of years ago and laugh at how ridiculous their views were, but they had those views because they didn't have an alternative. We do, you know, like we the the point that we've come to in this part of history, this side of history has happened over such a rapid, short time that we have lost all perspective on what it took to get there. I mean, when we talk <laughs> I about... I do Something like the Black Death, for example, which back in the 1300s, say, was believed to be caused by bad air or something like that. The, the, the cause of that was really only identified, I believe, in the late 19th century. So for hundreds of years, people just had no idea. So whatever they could formulate, I mean, in fact, medicine of that era 
was going back even further to influences from the ancient Greeks. You, you know, medical science has not pro- ha- has taken a very slow, torturous path to get to where it is today. But once they started figuring out how to apply it more effectively, that's where we see massive improvements, you know, and not just with medicine, with technology. You know, like we, we went within the space of 100 years from inventing airplanes to landing on the moon. You know, it, it took thousands and thousands of years to get to that short point in history. So when we think of Aunt Betty coming back to, to visit the dead, their concept was basically, and this will vary, so I don't want to generalise across the board because it, is, it does manifest in different ways. There was one example was um, a, a guy named George Teller uh, investigated an epidemic in, uh, I believe it was Serbia, and he found that what was happening was that it was people, the villagers were um, uh, uh, in fasting a lot, so very food deprived, kind of delirious, and basically seeing things. And when he changed their diet, the sighting stopped. You know, so in other cases, we have spreads of disease. So typically, if you read the the vampire accounts. The pattern is as follows, that a bunch of people start dying all of a sudden of some random disease and then occasionally they'll see sightings of the people um, that had been recently dead, you know, dead for weeks on end. So they go to the cemetery, they dig them up and sure enough they're fresh inside their graves and in some cases have blood trickling down their mouth. So put two and two together, oh, I know why they died. It's they a vampire. But what we now know, and it's taken a long, long time to get there, is that what more likely had happened was that the, the if you look at the season where this was happening, it was in winter. So the ground is cold. Uh, coldness preserves, um, it prevents decay for longer periods of time. Blood is gases escaping from the body, forcing liquid out. And this is a normal thing that happens in the decomposition process. But back in the day where you buried the dead fairly quickly, you didn't sit around watching, observing over, you know, several days what happens to a corpse. So they're just, that knowledge just wasn't there. Well, and on top of that too, how many people were buried alive, Anthony? Yeah. Well, that's another thing. In fact, I used to believe that was, a, you know, that was probably like a pseudo-scientific explanation. But I actually have found accounts that directly associate premature burial with um, cases of vampirism. There's one I wrote about in my blog uh, that happened in Greece where an unfortunate person had woken from the tomb and scared the people so much they... If I correct me, uh, I, I'm not going to say this with certainty, but I believe they killed them as well, threw rocks at them, and then she died. You know, I'm so having one of those bells installed in my coffin. I'm having one of those strings. You know what I'm talking about, right? I yeah, because uh, yeah, if they bury me alive, I'm ringing the fucking bell. Um, yeah, I'm not going that way. But but again, you touch on the the antiquarian burial practices, and I think I think oh, you know it, it is. And it, when you really think about it, you know, we're kind of distanced from that because, you, you know, there's more certainty about your passing. But this kind of stuff still happens today. You know, sure. people waking up on a slab, presumed dead. It just happened it, a few months really ago. Terrifying. 
yeah, it just happened a few months ago. A guy woke up in the morgue, scared the shit out of everybody. It's like, okay, uh, I guess, hey, he's, hey, I guess hey, he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're listening. Uh, you're listening to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm talking to my very, very good friend, Anthony Hogg, all the way from uh, Melbourne, Australia, who has forgotten more about vampires than I will ever know. We've been trying to have Anthony on for a little <laughs> while, and we're having a great chat about uh, the history and the, the lore of, of the belief in vampires. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, history and the evolution of the of the literature at first, and then we'll get into pop culture. The reason I want I mentioned the literature because one of the very very first Facebook exchanges we had, I brought up a few short stories or, that I, I have in a collection, and I yeah. tried to indicate or identify them. These are the earliest, and you were like, "No, fuck you! You don't know what you're talking about." These <laughs> these are old. There are older stories, and and the ones I wanted yeah. to mention, I have in a, in the book uh, in my hand right now, and um. One of them is called Wake Not the Dead by Johann uh, Ludwig Tieck. Uh, obviously, oh, obviously, we talk about Polidori, and, and I realize that comes later, but also Carmilla by uh, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu. And, uh, yeah. you know, we get into uh, the Horla by uh, Guy de Maupassant. You know, where does, where does the... Because, obviously, throughout human history, we go from... Uh, oral storytelling to written. Mm. I mean, I've watched, I don't know how many documentaries about King Arthur and where that actually comes from. Mm. And, and, you know, and obviously here in the United States and I'm sure uh, in Australia as well with the, uh, with native populations there, it goes from an oral to, yeah. and, and a lot of times it oh, doesn't yeah, even absolutely. get to written. Yeah. Right. So where mm. does this all start getting written down? Is it poetry? Is it short stories? Is it novelization? Where does it, where does vampire lore that, storytelling, that, where does it start? That is a good question. I mean, um, now the most identifiable era for that, like earlier I mentioned 1732, that's actually a date we can pinpoint. The earliest written reference to vampires, at least in English, was, I can even tell you the specific um, publication, was the uh, March 11th, uh, 1732 edition of the London Journal, which covered a an outbreak of vampirism in Serbia, in, in Medvedja, um, and... But obviously that wasn't the first ever appearance of it, but it was a major cultural turning point because that introduced, in English language anyway, people to the concept of it, which was ver virtually unknown at that time. But it, it depends, again, on what you consider a vampire to be. So if you look at, say, between the 1400s and 1600s, there were cases written about uh, there were um cases of the the greek for colocots which was written about by you know some priests or travel uh, uh, travelers and all that kind of thing so the the, the bedrock of modern of modern vampire uh, literature was already starting to get built there more and more research is uncovering further examples more direct parallels we can draw um one of the ones mentioned by Augustine Calmay, who wrote about vampires in the 18th century, was covered in the 1690s in the Mercure Gallant, where he was talking about Polish and Russian um, 
corpses called upias who mm-hmm. who were undead were were found in their coffins filled with blood and uh, would visit people and you know and and you know uh, attack them and, and and drink their blood and and they were staked as well. So when we're talking about vampires, we're using a Serbian word, which I believe is just the Serbian local variation of something else. So the common term in Slavic is upia, and that's a generic kind of word for a ghost. Mm. So when we think of a ghost now in 2021 or the, the tail end of 2021, we think of a transparent kind of ethereal being, but ghost has been used to cover like what we would call undead as well. In fact, Cal May referred to vampires as Hungarian ghosts. So he he was using... Um, at the time, Serbia was ruled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so they would call it the region Hungary or something like that. Um, but that kind of concept, uh, when did it, it – th- these are the kinds of accounts that they get written about in. So you might have some oral folk tales, you might have some written down, but it really comes to a head once the press – starts getting their mitts into these uh, outbreaks that were happening because that's you can you can see it all evolve from there. In fact, you mentioned Polidori before. The introduction to the vampire, which he wrote in 1819, actually mentions the the the, the London Journal, and and that's going that's a direct touch point to what influenced that model of, of vampire as well. Um, so when we're talking about I should also mention as well, Ludwig von Teague did not write uh, Wake Not the Dead, even though he was presumed to for a very long time. It was actually uh, Ernest uh, Salomon Rapak, and, and that's recently been kind of a, a, a subject of research as well. So, uh, See, this is why I have you on the show, because, you know, <laughs> I own these volumes and they, they say things and, and they're not 100% accurate. It well, does... it, 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 uh, I'm, I'm curious to know how that even started in the first place, because when it was originally published in English, it wasn't actually billed with an author. The introduction mentions Teak, but it doesn't say that he wrote that specific story. So I think some Something got lost in translation when it was anthologized down the track. But we, we can conclusively say that it was uh, Rawpack who, who wrote it. Um, gotcha. And, um, yeah, so going back to the topic, it, to me, the, the vampire is written about as a real entity. That That's the, the main distinguishing point. You could go further back than that and start going into the etymology of it, and that will take you onto another path entirely. That That's right. where... You know, I've got to be careful of straying too far off the topic. Um, but we're, we're really d- thinking of the vampire as a kind of a supernatural being which was written about almost in the same way that we write about ghost sightings today. I mean, you've got names, you've got dates, you've got places. You right. know, we're not that far removed from it as a phenomena. And even today... The phenomena, uh, the the kind of um, the stories about it still continue. I've got a, a, a contact in Serbia who told me about cases getting reported as late as 2011. You know, th- there's a sure. more famous one from um, from Romania in 2000, uh, about 2003, 2004. Petra Toma, where his relatives unearthed him, and uh, because they said that he was coming back to to uh, attack them. The, the myth hasn't died yet. It still exists in small pockets. And, and th- this is very much a kind of 
we think of it as a folk tale, but it's also, to me, it's very similar to paranormal encounters. You know, it's just not in the not in an urban setting. It's not um, it's not with ghost hunting apparatuses. It's just people talking about things happening to them. You know, it's, whether or not you believe them, of course, is a different story. Well, it's not something you can just dismiss exists. out of hand, mm. right? Oh yeah, it, right. It's it, it, it's an interesting. Um, Romania is Romania is a funny one because Romania has a, a huge association with vampires thanks to, to you know Dracula, um, but they do have an established tradition of the Strigoi, which yep. is basically I would say a localized version of the vampire. Again, right. if we look at the the vampire as a kind of a, a Slavic being, you know, from a vast area. In fact, one of my um, friends, uh, Daniel J. Wood, wrote a book called Realm of the Vampire where he really helped contextualise this for me. We, when we think of countries, you know, like this happening in a certain country, we think of the border surrounding that. But historically, borders move all the time. So it's really about the migration of people. You know, so where people go, they take their stories with them. So you might get a local manifestation of something they believe back in the homeland or something like that. Um, and, and, yeah, it's not something that is set in stone and rooted to one place. It's kind of something that shifts between people and there's multiple words for the same kind of thing or a similar kind of phenomena as well. I think that kind of is where there is a truth in the universal element behind it but for me i personally i like to see established links not just a random generalization i I do like to make more concrete connections right and that's that's where your scholarship and your your academic approach to it come into play let's uh let's Mm. talk a little bit more about pop culture because Mm. you know it seems like there's an eight two eighty year leaps right there from polidori um Mm. to well, from from 1732, as you mentioned, to Polidori in 1819, and yep. then to 1897 when Bram Stoker's Dracula is published, mm. and and it seems mm. like at least in the public consciousness, it's it's our literature, and later on yes. it's our television and movies, but it's mm. it's these are what define what we come to believe these things are, and and that even happened yeah. with werewolves with Universal Films in the 1940s. Yes. Because there wasn't a whole lot of werewolf, um, you know, storytelling prior to that. At least you could find it if you look for it. But um, it wasn't as popular as as uh, Mary Shelley had made Frankenstein. Or uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think the werewolf has an equivalent. You know, like no. vampires have Dracula. I don't know what genre. Frankenstein's a bit of it's, an interesting one. It's science it's, fiction. It's, it's she invented the genre. Yeah, yeah, she she can. Um, th- these are these are hallmark tones, you know. Like you can say, um, uh, Doctor Jekyll and, and Mister Hyde. You've got these classic kind of, t- you know, even for aliens, you've got War of the Worlds. Yes. There's nothing like that. I would say for werewolves, like a classic werewolf One, book. It might be correct. kind of, you know, nothing that's resonated in the same way. No, and that's an interesting thing because you know there is overlap. Between werewolves and vampires, 100%. And, and Stoker yeah. did a ton of werewolf research, and there's and you can see the the werewolf mm-hmm. influence on the Dracula character. Um, yeah. So Stoker produces, uh, 
you know, the genre-defining book in 1897, and, and yep. we talked off-air off, off air about this, but we'll get to it in a second. Yeah. Um, he, he's the first one to kind of really intimate in literature how you make a vampire. And it, it's there, but a lot of it's in the subtext, right? And then um, it's there in the exposition in the 1931 film with, with Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. And, and from then until... Anne Rice's interview with a vampire, it, it really makes absolutely no sense how you make a vampire. The Hammer films <laughs> didn't explain it. It's, okay, you get bit, you're a vampire. You get bit, you're a vampire. There's there's no explanation. But there's some with, with Christopher Lee in a couple of the films where you have to drink from him, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, but it's... Well, I think that's a direct lift from Dracula, by sure the way. Sure it is. But it, it, it's, uh, it's the scene where, in, in the novel specifically, where... Um, Dracula force, forces Mina to drink from him, but it's the only scene in the book that uh, where it, there's no direct implication that if that process must happen to turn someone into a vampire, it's, it could have been just a scene of uh, Dracula asserting his dominance over sure. Mina, you know, to get back at the people hunting you. That's a good... But it became, with yeah. Anne Rice, it did become more of a, that's how you do it kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like an instruction manual, right? She... Oh, yeah. Anne yeah. Rice was the first one to take, to stand on on Stoker's shoulders in this particular regard and, and give the step-by-step, but also the experiential part of it, right? So she's the first one who really did that. And, and in a lot of ways, she redefines the genre, starting with Interview with a Vampire, which I find interesting because um, the the Dracula tapes by Fred Saberhagen, from what I yeah. understand, influenced Anne Rice in the writing of Interview with a Vampire. So And yeah. Saberhagen's book is absolute trash. So... <laughs> <laughs> and and in my world, it's already in the trash because the book fell apart. I couldn't save it. Um, it had cigarette ads in it, Anthony. It had cigarette ads in the fucking paperback. Oh, classic. Yeah, yeah, isn't that great? Classic sign of the times. Yeah. Yes, right? In um, 1974 and all that. But but even even Stephen King in Salem's Lot mm-hmm. doesn't explain how his vampires are made, right? It's, it's just kind mm-hmm. of this, this thing. So, but... The way I get it, the way I look at it, from in the 20th century, we start with 1922's Nosferatu, and then we go to mm. 31's Dracula with Bela Lugosi, which is more based on the the play than it is the book. And then, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right? And then Universal does the character a total disservice. I sent you the blog I wrote on the misrepresentations of, of Dracula on the big screen. Uh, Universal totally butchers the character, and, and he really, Dracula does not really make a comeback cinematically until the 70s and you have dan curtis's dracula in 1974 with jack palance and then you have uh the bbc presentation with louis jordan as dracula well, then, I, I would say you skipped a beat there. well well, well I'm, I'm, that's a different thing i'm getting to that yeah, bear, bear with me here bear with me on that one <laughs> right so then you yeah. have frank langella in 79 yeah now what Hammer tried to do in 1958 with Horror of Dracula is reboot the Universal franchise and on all yeah. of their franchises. And funny, they only did one werewolf movie. Um, yeah. They did The Mummy, they did Frankenstein, they did Dracula. And Christopher Lee puts his own stamp on the Dracula character, right? Yeah. And, and I think there was some swing and miss with the continuity of the whole thing. And, and you know, it's kind of funny. They all repeat the same missteps. 
But as far as the singular adaptation of the book, he doesn't make that, that um, uh, kind of isn't resurrected that way until 77's BBC production with Louis Jordan, which oh, is, yeah, yeah. it's considered by many the most faithful adaptation mm-hmm. of the book. 1992, we have Francis Ford Coppola's version with uh, Gary Oldman as Dracula, which is, is spectacular. Um, and then we have a lot of crap between then and now. Um, yeah. Right? So, but, as far as the character itself in films and television, uh, vampires and and the Dracula character in particular seem to, as you mentioned, they it comes and goes, right? You can't keep mm-hmm. a good vampire down, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. So they they seem to keep coming back from the grave every every ten years, or I couldn't even put a number mm-hmm. on it, but every so often, you know, we kind of forget about them. We're into zombies. We're into this. We're into that. We're afraid of aliens and communists or whatever. Um, yeah. And then yeah, here come the vampires again, right? So because even even with Hammer, you gotta you gotta talk about their their uh, adaptation of Carmilla, the the whole Karnstein trilogy that yeah. they attempted. Um, but when it comes to literature, when it comes to what we read from Anne Rice on, it becomes this whole other thing. And with the advent of today's publishing, it is it is a very very active subgenre. And, mm. and vampire movies and television shows like Vampire Diaries, as you mentioned, Twilight, mm. um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's all kinds of stuff. The uh, the recent BBC uh, three part yeah. series with with Clay's Bang as as um, uh, Dracula. Um, it, and, and next year there's going to be uh, a Salem's Lot reboot, a theatrical yeah. release. So. Yeah. Kind of give me your broad brush, your broad stroke of the vampire in popular culture in the last hundred years or so. It, it's it's an interesting kind of traje- uh, trajectory, uh, like you mentioned before, like Twilight. So, in I have never seen in my history of interest in the subject so much vampire pop culture, at least on TV. Um, devoted to vampires and not like before you know you might have your series that might have lasted one season or something like that but we've had multiple ones we've had as you said Buffy the Vampire Slayer Angel uh, you've had Moonlight you've got most recently Midnight Mass you've got uh, on this is it's yep. not just TV anymore of course we've no, got streaming, streaming right but what well. was that show Anthony what was the show with the cop up. he was a vampire what was the show you know what yeah, I'm that was that. That's the one, and and you there's there's been so many over such a short period of time. It's such a bizarre thing, to, even just throwing it out there. The strain, you know, there was yeah. uh, there was there was so so much of this happening at once, and most bizarrely, it seems to have followed directly in the wake of Twilight. Like a lot of it is an antithesis to. The, I guess the romantic angle of what Twilight is—that's where you get the strain. You get Midnight Mass. You've got the—you've got things like the Van Helsing series. You've got uh, Winona. I think it's Winona Earp. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of there's just so much. Even Castlevania. Uh, it, it's just it just. I think what you've got is you've got streaming platforms who've got enough money to splash around and just throw things at the wall and see what kind of sticks. So they're taking up the the, the banner from um, our mainstream TV uh, networks. Um, but it is interesting that certain shows, like even Vampire Diaries, you got True Blood. These shows lasted for years. This is a yeah. very amazing time to be a vampire fan. You know, like for me growing up, 
there was long periods of just nothing in pop culture. You know, like you really had to scrabble. In fact, that's probably what helped entrench my interest because I had to look for whatever I could get. Mm. You know, I might get a horror magazine and hope that there was something in there, look through the horror books. Now you're, you're, you're really spoiled for choice. You know, like especially the advent of self-publishing as well, which I do. I do with my journal. You know, it's not publisher, traditional publisher. It's me, uh, and I use a service like Ingram Spark to do it. Uh, And but it's a struggle for me now too because I actually rifle through sites like Amazon trying to find the latest vampire nonfiction. And trying to find that amidst like a, a hundred thousand vampire novels, you know, that people are just churning out. It's it's a, it's you're absolutely spoiled for choice. But I think getting back to Anne Rice before, I think Anne Rice came along at just the right time. So she first wrote the, I guess, the bare bones of the story in the late sixties, and that same era saw um, uh, the Dark Shadows. TV series, you know, so and yes. and that had a sympathetic vampire as a lead as well. So there's another example of an ongoing story. I think the reason why the vampires gained so much traction in the last, you know, say forty odd years is because we moved away from the monstrous vampire, you know, fairly one dimensional dimensional cardboard character, into something that was much more developed. And uh, um, uh, filled with emotion and, and thoughts and feelings. It wasn't the first time this had happened because going back into the 19th century, you've got Barney the Vampire. I was going to bring Barney up. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah we, we're going back almost 200 years. So, spoiler alert, he ends up killing himself at the end by jumping into Mount Vesuvius because he can't handle being a vampire anymore. So, the, the, the elements. When, when we think of something to how it's gotten to now, we tend to think of these major jumping points, but we don't see all the stuff that's happening in between. You mentioned Saberhagen's novel. That came out a year before Anne Rice's book did, but it, does the, it has the same function. It's actually the story told from the vampire's perspective. Did Saberhagen know that Anne Rice had done had already been writing something like that? It's unlikely. He just he just happened to be around. There's something in the air happening at that time. The zeitgeist where where the, the script is flipped from um, from being the, the the main focus being the human characters to and and that's the same thing with Dracula because Dracula in the novel has got a big presence in the opening chapters, but then he virtually disappears for most of the novel. But so now with Anne Rice and Saberhagen and all of the all of them, even Dark Shadows itself, the vampire becomes the main character. Now you can't have a long running series if the vampire's only job is to just, you know, suck necks and then disappear and get destroyed. You've got to flesh <laughs> him out as a character. So, you know, that's what's changed. That's what Anne Rice did. I wouldn't say Anne Rice did the mechanics of, of becoming a vampire first, but I would say that she made it more of a a, a rounded experience, you know, that there right. is a process, you know, right. drink from this. So she created a mythology uh, and uh, and other people have used that since just the other day. And a day, pseudoscience, right, Anthony? I mean, mm. it's really kind mm. of a pseudoscience. When you think about yes. it, right? Because yeah. you got to think yeah. about, yeah. you know, what happens when we die, 
right? That's the first thing mm-hmm. you got to think about. And then what's the process when you yeah. ingest another vampire's blood? What are, I what think are those? In, in, in our era, like this does touch in our, our kind of societal mindset. So the concept of proving your points through referencing is a relatively – uh, I won't say modern concept, but definitely something that's more entrenched now than it would have been back in the day where you kind of just take people's words for things. You know, they're an authority because they've written about it rather than they're an authority because they've backed up completely what they've said and, you know, they've done the reliable. And, and that's how these the cases of vampire st- uh, stories started to spread in the first place. Now, when we're talking about dates and places, they just recorded it virtually without question at first and then later on that's where you start getting the investigation um but what what she's what she has done is is created very much a vampire's world you know like she's lifted the 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 veil off of an entire society of vampires whereas before the vampire is almost like a, a very shadowy kind of one-off kind of creature, you know. Sure. In, in, in fact, in the gap between Dracula and uh, and Rice's novel, you've got other things filling the way. You've got pulp um, stories, you know. Like one of my favourite anthologies is uh, Weird Vampire uh, Tales. Um, I have from, that. Uh, collate, yeah, it's a really great book, you know, collecting um, uh, pulp stories from weird tales, you know, amazing mm-hmm. mysteries, all, all that stuff. Yep. And you can see the humanistic side of the vampire creeping into those as well because the more these stories get churned out, you've got to stand out somehow. So they're coming out with all these inventive angles of how to tackle a vampire. I think I, I think it was even Robert Block who wrote one called Cross of Fire, which is in that book, where it's actually uh, – it's a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. It's told from the vampire's perspective, but you kind of realise that at the end. You know, so once we start flipping from the human um, uh, narrator to the the vampire narrator, that's where things really change, and that's that's what now drives narratives in modern vampire pop culture, where the vampire is the not not the bad, not necessarily the bad guy, but the main protagonist. That that is a huge. That's the big cultural shift that's happened. In fact, Anne Rice even addressed that herself, where she said that people are now drawn to the anti-hero. Yeah. And in the 60s, that's what happened. When we saw Westerns move from the white hat, black hat, to you had a character like um, uh, Clint Eastwood's Man With No Name, where he's a gun for hire and a kind of more morally ambiguous. God, you just and took the words out of my mouth. a human thing. Sorry? You took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say there's this gray area. Yeah. There's this moral ambiguity, right? And yeah. I think I think we all, we all live in this gray area, right? And, and, and that's exactly why it resonates because the va- that's what makes the humanization of the vampire so successful. It's no longer a cut and dried evil figure. It's a, it can be a vampire with a conscience. And, and that's what... That's what really caught on with um, something like Interview, where you've got Lewis who fulfills that role. He, he's the vampire who can't handle his existence. He feels massive guilt over it. But then you've got the flip side to him, which is Lestat, who you know, fully embraces. He's a, a hedonist, you know, a, yes. a, a, who fully embraces this thing. And depending on what kind of person you are, that's what, and you'll, you'll have a choice between which one kind of resonates with you more on a subconscious way. And that's kind of 
what lures people in. You know, it, it's changed. What was it, it's essentially now it's become okay to embrace a dark side. And I think that's what changed with the with the 60s, especially, where you had an explosion in the cult interest, an explosion of freedom of expression, where we've come from a traditionally Judeo-Christian society where such things were frowned on. Now it's virtually anything goes, you know, as long as you don't, you know, hurt people or you can you can now openly be a witch, which is something that you would have been hung or, or burned, burned at the stake hundreds of years ago. You can wear black, you can look, you can be queer, you can be gay, you can you can be transgender, you can be all these things which people had suppressed for so long because it was not culturally acceptable. Now it is, and that's what the vampires tapped into. It, it, has, it has become okay to be that kind of thing, and it's rationalised through, um, through their more human behaviour where they make decisions. They're not just compelled purely to feed and they're not purely evil figures they have um they have their struggles you know and of course in the midst of that you do get your ones who are overtly um bad or evil or whatever as well and you even get the pushback from things like 30 days of night and all that kind of thing where it is meant to be an antithesis to the humanized vampire you know, we, we want our monsters back, so let's make them as monstrous as possible. And it's an exaggeration, a, a huge hyperbolic version of of what the original folkloric vampire was. This is what happens when stories transmit. The nuance is all gone. It, thro- it gets tossed out the window and you start getting these very stripped down concepts of what people are drawn their inspirations from. I like 30 yeah, days so. a night, but here's the thing. You you really hit the nail on the head a second ago, right? As much as we can take a look at, at Anne Rice, especially with, you know, I don't know how you do it in Australia, but but here I'm, ra- yeah. you know, uh, my Irish heritage, I'm, I'm raising a glass to, to mm-hmm. Anne Rice, mm-hmm. little little 12-year-old scotch here. Um, but, but you just kind of hit the nail on the head because we could look at Interview of the Vampire and we could say Louis represents the buttoned up gray flannel of yeah. the 1950s yeah. right and lestat yeah. is the 1960s hippie or the hedonist yes. right yeah. right we could say yeah. that but it goes even deeper and further than that because if you go all the way back to the beginning of vampire literature so much mm. of this is metaphoric for forbidden fruit forbidden sex forbidden relationships oh absolutely right yeah. being yeah. gay being yeah. queer this mm. this has been at least in pop culture, from literature to the Penny Dreadfuls all the way to the, the the successful novels, that's what it's been about the whole fucking time. Mm. I mean, it you is. could you could make that argument anyway. Um, Bruce A. McClellan's actually written a book specifically about this, which is Slayers and Their Vampires. Essentially, the vampire was a societal scapegoat. So you can pin all the bad stuff on there and take it out on the vampire. Same with the witch, same with any kind of ostracized figure. It's all their fault. In the 80s, you had the satanic panic. Oh it's, it's an outsider figure who you can pin. And, of course, getting even more sinister, you know, Jews in 1930s Germany. It's the outsider figure who you can pin all society's evils on. And uh, and rather than it, take it on yourself, you know, and then uh, uh, destroy them accordingly, you know, to uh, to cleanse society of it of, of its badness. But if and, we were and, to and, distill it, 
It's been going on for 300 years. Yeah, it, it's it's nothing new. This is the no. thing. This is we, we have really the only thing that changes really is the clothes and the taste. You know, the music. <laughs> right. In fact, Lestat in the next novel became a rock star. Absolutely, you know, so that was the classic 80s uh, outside a bad boy type right there. You know, and mm-hmm. th- that's exactly it. it it's the the development. I mean, Anne Rice talks about Lestat as being something like someone who speaks to her, like a very real kind of entity, obviously in a writer in a writer's imagination, but speaks as if, as if he's a real person and how he evolves. And uh, uh, Lestat is a reflection of herself. You know, I think she's mentioned stuff like that before. Um, and uh, although, and remember, Anne Rice herself was a, a, a Catholic growing up too, so. Mm-hmm. Everything that she channeled into the not, in, in fact, putting it a more finer point on it, I think what Anne Rice did was she made the vampire a literary being. You know, it, it evolved from Stoker's novel was considered it, it, it was a mild success back in the day when it first came out. Its power was recognised, but just not to the extent that it became appreciated later on. It was not taken seriously as a book. Or, you know, to study, not a piece of classic literature. That's changed as well because with the academics jumping on board, uh, they've mined every possible detail and I'm sure there's more beyond that they could get out of it. Well, the you know, Rosenbach Stoke Museum in Philadelphia research. continues to study it, so it's, oh, you yeah, know. Yeah. We, it, it won't stop any time soon. No. There is a, literally an entire field Dracula studies devoted to the novel and its associated things. And there's more and more discoveries that keep getting made. Like we saw recently the publication in English of the Icelandic translation, which yes. turned out not to be a translation. It was actually an adaptation yep. and plot twist again. It was actually based on another story, which was the Swedish version. And, you know, like all of this, even now in 2021, there's more and more stuff that keeps coming out. It is a, yeah. It's a topic you can mine endlessly. Um, and the same thing with Anne Rice's stories as well. She she took a very literary, much more serious approach to her work, you know, and you can hear – and when you read her interviews and how she speaks about it, that's what's different because between Stoker and, and Rice, you uh, most of the literature, I would say, on vampires was pulp fiction. So very, I, I know, don't disagree with that. Story. Yeah, they, you know, it's not good. There, there's no, there's a few novels between then and there. You know, not saying that feel was completely bare, but really taking, really immersing herself in the story and in the characters and all that kind of stuff. That the lit, the the literary artist's approach is what she did. And that's why yeah. I think it, it has gotten the traction it has because she took it seriously enough to really get stuck right into it, to really explore explore it for all it's worth. Yeah, and, and when you look at it, you know, after Stoker, the vampire mm-hmm. took to the screen for the better yes. part, you know, of, of 70, yeah. 80 years until, until Anne Rice brought us, you know, her vampire's and, yeah. and brought it back to literature. So, well, yeah. it, it, even more interestingly, as well, the first, possibly the very first public manifestation of Dracula, as in as in the novel, was actually the stage reading that yeah. that uh, Stoker did, which was believed to be for copyright reasons. Stoker yeah. was a theatre manager. You know, his client yeah. was um, Henry Irving, a very popular actor back in the day. And an he was, asshole. He was immersed in that kind of 
theater is the the precursor to cinema. You know, right. it's all the the, the the story of the vampires spread in pop culture ties directly into this mass media. Yep. So going back to 1732 again, where was this reported in newspapers? And it went global. Right. You know, it went it even appears in America. It was reported in America as well. You know, they picked up the stories from Europe. They would report on what things they had heard about that were happening in Europe. Um, and then it, it went across the globe. You know, as many places were, were able to hear the stories out. Um, and what we've had... Uh, and. Th- the, the thing that has enabled it spread even further is the democratisation of mass media. So now we have social media, so we can spread things even further. We can publish stories ourselves. You can have a story available in an instant. You know, you, yep. you can get it on Kindle. It, it, it has followed us this whole time with whatever media uh, approach that we, take, that we take, you know. Well, uh, I promised I would explain how we met in the first place, right? And you, God, get out of my head, Anthony, I swear. Because <laughs> um, a lot of the, the vernacular, the words, a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. we're, we're very, very like-minded on a lot of this. So, um, mm-hmm. But anyway, you mentioned social media, right? So let's, mm-hmm. let's go back about 20, 25 years when the internet first became a thing. And uh, yeah. Geo, GeoCities was, was the place where Everybody had to have a website. Uh, it was blogging yeah. before blogging. If you had an interest, uh, you were there. There were people who loved the uh, the cartoon gargoyles. I couldn't believe how many uh, websites were dedicated to that, that fucking television show. Uh, uh, I should have told you at the top, alcohol and foul language were part of the program, but uh, you can't do alcohol right now because you got somewhere to be and somebody to, to children to deal with. But um, so... What I what I saw was a ton of, of vampire communities online, right? And a, vamp- a lot of vampire websites, a lot of a lot of role playing going on, a lot of stuff. And if you yep. did a search um, a few years ago for all this, you'd find a lot of websites that still existed that were ten to twenty years old and hadn't been updated mm-hmm. in just as long, right? So mm-hmm. I was wondering, as I was thinking about you know writing my books and and how to promote them and and how to reach fans, it's like where are they? And they're on Facebook, right? And our and our good friend Aaron Chapman and you, uh, along with Andy Boylan, who I, I don't know very well. Oh yeah, at all, yeah, right. But oh, he'd be a good interview. So oh yeah, 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 yeah. But that triumvirate, right? You guys are you're almost like the arbiters and 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 the progenitors of this this Facebook community about the subject of vampires. And I always love it when you start taking people apart on Facebook about, about some of their, their weird beliefs. Um, but uh, the, the thing of it is, this is how you and I got to be friends. This is how I got to know Aaron. And, you know, uh, like I said, I had Aaron on the program and, and she was a great interview. We had a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, I get to know people around the world uh, on, you know, through social media. Some I meet in person and stay in contact uh, via mm. via that kind of thing. But in, in your particular case, until, until we can meet in person, we are uh, friends this way. But what I found early, early on is that you knew a hell of a lot more than I did about this particular subject. Even, even the literature part, which I have, I have, I've studied to some degree, obviously not as deep as you have. So when you get to know Anthony Hogg, you realize that he's an academic and that he is a scholar. So tell my audience of whatever it is, 35 people, um, (laughs) 
<laughs> We're working on it. Uh, what what's the vampire journals? What what is this all about? You got one dropping uh, this okay, weekend, yeah. and and you get the latest latest edition coming out this weekend. It's uh, a, I, I yeah. do yeah. So um, in 2018, I established the Vampire Studies Association. Now, the Vampire Studies Association was basically my what I wanted to do with it was I figured since there's no specific group like this now, I will start my own. I, I mean, there's a, a number of influences I drew on, including one club I belong to called the Transylvanian Society of Dracula, but they obviously examine Dracula more specifically, whereas I wanted a kind of broader approach. Um, the, the the journal was something I, I, I was already thinking about many, many years ago. Like, in I've, I've got a journal, a diary entry from 2014, but I'd even already come up with the name. But the first issue was published in 2020. Um, so from conception to when I really I started to solicit articles for it in 2017, there was m- many missteps in my perfectionism and the tinkering until eventually I had to go, you must stop now, get it out, you know, otherwise I'm just going to be working on this thing forever. But essentially what I use it for is a platform to collate um, to collate material from people who are doing who are saying very interesting things about the subject now. You mentioned Montague Summers before. In the very first issue, uh, I've got a, a great piece by uh, Niels, Niels K. Peterson, who's speaking of blogging and so forth, is actually how I met him. He runs a blog called Magic and Post Humor. Uh, he wrote something that I titled um, Is Montague Summer Still Relevant to Vampire Study Today? So what, what I, I take a very kind of iconoclastic approach to the subject because we can't rest in our laurels when it comes to research and literature. I mean, uh, Montague's work was taken as gospel for so long, but you really need to reassess and reevaluate. The, the, the value and the and the, the research out there. Like I said, we learn new things all the time. You know, uh, one of the things that got me really into it was uh, the debunking work of Elizabeth Miller, her, her famous Dracula scholar. Uh, probably her best-known book might be Dracula, Sense and Nonsense, where she explored all the claims made about the novel and then and then kind of used the novel itself to, to justify whether or not those things had any merit to them. So I very much like that kind of a debunking kind of uh, re-evaluation, a critical kind of approach. You know, I, I'm not a uh, an academic in the sense I'm specifically affiliated with, you, with a university. I would guess I, I would call myself more of an armchair scholar if I'm really brutal about it. It's just something I like to write about and explore and um, if I find something interesting, then if it compels me enough, I will share it. But the idea behind this journal was to basically have a, a flagship publication where we could coalesce um, the, the, the subject of vampire studies into a unified form because right now it's just everywhere. You know, the stuff that I collect is from various journals, various books. It's not quite centralised, and that's what the aim of my association and the journal is, to provide... In, in a recent interview that I did, I don't even know if it's going to be published or not, but for Vampire, V-A-M-P-Y-E magazine, um, 
I mentioned it, it, my journal is something I would like to see in actual universities. You know, it, it is very much based on standard academic journals. It is not like a kind of, I mean, it, it, it does have an influence from fan publications because before this journal came along, the main outlets were fanzines and, and things sure. like that before the internet. So touching on that era again, and they were landmark works in their own right. The, a couple of examples just off the top of my head is um, uh, uh, Martin B. Ricardo's uh, uh, Journal of Vampirism. There was John L. Bellatini's Journal of Vampirology. But I've taken... I've taken it up even more. So my journal is much more influenced by something you would get published by, you know, University of Chicago Press or Oxford University or something like that. I've looked at so many different diverse journals on how to kind of make this a, 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 a proper kind of publication, one that can be taken seriously enough and get people involved and, um, you know, make it a field of study. Uh, one of the things that we've got in the current issue, which is due out of this, uh, December 17th across a whole variety of platforms, Amazon, you know, Book Depository, the works, is uh, one of the standouts is Deborah Hyde's uh, uh, article on the Crogland Vampire, where she examines all the different ways the story has changed uh, when when other authors have written about it, we to the point where you can see that they very clearly fabricated a lot of the story. You know, you've got a very basic uh, initial version, and then over time, just like any urban legend or anything like that, people start throwing in details. They elaborate. You know, people start getting named where they didn't have names before. So exploring things like that taking a kind of skeptic's view of the subject is something that has great appeal to me, you know, um, because it really gets you stuck into the subject rather than just repeating stories. You're kind of getting a chance to reevaluate it. And that even applies to myself. Like, for example, I used to think that Stoker was the one who invented the idea that vampires can turn into bats because as far as I knew, there was no antecedent to that. But then a scholar named um, Kevin Dodd uh, contacted me and he showed me a piece he'd written where my view was blown out of the water. It was He, he actually was able to cite pre-Stoker examples of that happening. And I'd done a similar thing myself, like uh, Emily Girard, who wrote an article in 1885 called Transylvanian Superstitions, which was a major influence on um, uh, Stoker's vampire, on Dracula, um, was believed to be the the source of the term Nosferatu. Mm. But I found one that actually predated her by 20 years by a a guy named Wilhelm Schmidt um, who had actually written about it. In fact, now the the idea is that she could have gotten influenced by him and and so on. So... There's always discoveries to be made, and that's the point of the journal, the point of the association. It's not a stagnant field. It's one just like the vampire that evolves over time. New ideas come along, um, new landmark tomes, you know, uh, while at the same time we can appreciate what's come before us. So even though, you know, we can now move on from Montague Summers, we can at the same time recognise that without his work, it wouldn't have inspired other people to do, you know, to pursue the subject as much as he did. So he, his work still has its place. Um, 
in in our in our in our field today. But what it's all really about is kind of making people aware of what is actually out there. That nothing's set in stone. It's just that you know it, it can grow and evolve as well. And and you know, folks like you are are keeping the scholarship alive. And you know, when I call you an academic, oh, yeah, when yeah. I call you an academic, yeah. that that means you're more than an armchair hobbyist, right? That that means you know you've yeah, you've, yeah. you've I, taken I, I, it. I, that was actually something that I was um, that I discussed in the other interview I mentioned because to, to me, people kind of denigrate the thing sometimes, but. You know, like, in fact, there's the automatic assumption that if I study this subject, I must believe in vampires as well. No, <laughs> no it's like, in, the funny thing is, this is not a new phenomenon either, because Stephen Kaplan, who was also a vampirologist back in the 70s, um, he, one of the things he wrote about was just because I write about vampires doesn't mean that I, I you know, I am one or I believe them. Just like a bacteriologist, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they are bacteria as well. It's just something that we write about. <laughs> it's something that we find interesting, you know, like any exactly. film or literature critic or anything like that. And and even if you did believe in them. You know, whatever. Yeah, so what? What's the strength of your work? How that, many billions of people believe in a, in a god, right? I mean, so if you, any, be, you believe any in... kind of supernatural yeah. kind of thing, you know. Exactly. It's all about the thing that unites all scholarship is what are you bringing to the table? Does your right. work hold up scrutiny? Whatever your beliefs, whatever your background, it's ultimately all about the work. And that's why in the case of uh, Montague Summers, it was a critical reevaluation. Does it still hold up today, 90 odd years later? That kind of thing. You know, yeah. scholarship is meant to evolve. It is not meant to just stay that way forever. If new, new ideas come along. Well, new discoveries. New and, things, including myself. Yeah, 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 new discoveries like you like you mentioned. Anthony, this has been uh, incredibly enlightening, and even if my audience <laughs> didn't find it to be, I sure did. Uh, I mean, Fingers this is... Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Right? Yeah. Uh, or get across. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the yeah. thing with my, with my fiction, right? I wanted to bring back... Uh, you know, some of the tropes that, that we saw uh, kind of erased from it, right? The the religiosity, the, the symbolism, oh, yeah, that, yeah. right? So yeah. in, in that case, you know, something, you know, you had mentioned that, that some of that stuff had been glossed over or, or legislated out of the genre, right? So I tried yeah, to bring... at the same time, there's a logic to that too, which is we're becoming less religious, you know? Yes. So we, 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 and... The vampire evolves with people, you know. It keeps yeah. kind of – it's kind of like a dark traveler that kind of follows us as, as we go along and it echoes our societal changes along the way. Nice Dexter reference there. That's good. Uh, the dark traveler. Uh, yeah. Anthony, this has been great. I'll have to have you on the show again. I know you're up against a time crunch here as we record uh, – <laughs> Here uh, it's uh, after early afternoon for you mm-hmm. and uh, early evening for me. Uh, the day before, talk about time traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Anthony, I am uh, happy and proud to count you among my friends, even though we haven't met in person. And yeah. uh, and, and uh, you know, we'll we'll have to have this conversation again. We'll uh, we'll have to do it around uh, uh, you know Halloween and and talk about mm-hmm. uh, some of the other cultural influences. Oh yeah, that'd be good. That would be yeah. interesting time. Yeah. yeah talk about all the uh, other cultural influences. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting stuff to talk about how, 
it's uh, the vampire has gone from monster to almost sympathetic character that anti-hero oh, yeah. Yeah. um and and i think i think some of the points you made um the genre the study um you know the mythology the lore it's not going anywhere there are new discoveries to be made there are new stories to be told whether they be f- true scientific mm. or completely made up in fiction um mm. the vampire endures and i think i think that's one of, and there, there's so much more we didn't we didn't cover about about the allure of of the the uh potential power of of a vampire the darkness mm. the uh uh, longevity of life, the the sexuality. We didn't get into all that. Oh, stuff. absolutely. You know, yeah. the, the, in fact, the biggest question I get, the, the the one that keeps coming up over and over and over again, is how can I turn into a vampire? And this is again, <laughs> no. it's not a new thing. I see uh, it on fact, Facebook all the time. It's on Facebook all the time. But going back to the 60s with the start of kind of vampire fan clubs, they had the same questions asked them too. Going back to Lugowski, he had fan letters because, again, this is not something that you could express safely, you know, in, 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 in polite society. But now the gloves are off, you know, like as, as long as you feel comfortable to kind of do it, then it's out there. You know, the, the tide has changed quite a lot. Yeah, and and again, there's always new stories to be told, whether they're 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 true and scientific or they're fiction. Uh, it's yeah. fertile ground for uh, for those of us who do write fiction. Uh, yeah. I encourage you to uh, take your hand at it because I tell you what, your fiction will be more informed than anybody else's in the history of the genre. <laughs> um, so uh, all the way from Melbourne, Australia, mm-hmm. my man Anthony Hogg talking about vampires here on the mm-hmm. Get the Neck podcast. I wanna I wanna thank you for taking the last. Uh, what is it? Uh, hour and uh, 16, 17 minutes to talk oh, about this yeah, subject. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely! You got an open invitation to come on. We ought to do a we ought to do a group show. We ought to have uh, Aaron and Andy on sometime. We we do it on Zoom uh, or yeah, somehow and good. find a way to record it and uh, and and do like a, a whole whole thing about uh, vampires and oh a panel yeah, yeah like panel, panel discussion yeah. yeah there you go panel discussion. Yeah. Well, Anthony, thank you again, especially for making the time all the way from Australia and and making mm-hmm. the schedules work. That's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Knack podcast from Ocean Shores, Washington. I have been your host, Jerry Knack, for Anthony Hogg. We'll talk to you next time.